seated. If you've got your copy of God's Word this morning, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 36. As you're turning there, I want to thank our singers and musicians this week. I told them this week that we were going to be honoring our older generation during our service, and we thought that uh, one of the best ways we could do that would be uh, to try to cater our service and our music, which is usually a, a, a good blend of old and new, uh, more towards the old. Uh, because some of those songs uh, are the ones that so many in our older generation grew up with. I remember standing in church uh, in Arkansas where I grew up in the 90s, and there were two songs that every time that they got played, my dad, uh, who was a strong man, who very rarely cried, would start shedding a tear on. One was the old rugged cross, which he told me always reminded him of his dad and singing in church. And another one that I always remember moved him was the one we just sang, In the Garden, as he considered dwelling with Jesus forever. So uh, thank you for serving our church this morning in that way. We've been walking through the book of Exodus this year of 2019, and we find ourselves in the middle of the book this morning. We've seen in detail how God has saved His people Israel from their bondage in Egypt, how He has sustained them in the wilderness, and now He has entered into a covenant with Israel, calling these people to live with Him as their God and their King. The Ten Commandments that we, many of us are familiar with are the beginning of this covenant. But then we're now in a section in Exodus 21 through 23 known as the Book of the Covenant or the Book of the Law where God gives specific instructions to govern Israel's life together. Oftentimes these laws don't seem to be relevant to us today, but the last handful of weeks we've been looking at how what these laws do is they reveal to us the character of our God that never changes. And they also inform us of the rules that God gave Israel to ensure that they would be a just and righteous people distinct from all the nations that surrounded them. So this morning we read a long list of laws about justice and retribution from Exodus 21. Let's read verses 12 through 36 together. Exodus 21 verse 12 says, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar, that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man doesn't die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. 
But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death also. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Verse 33, when a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit, and it does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his." When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. All right. So if we're honest, we read those and we think, Seriously, of this whole book, you couldn't come up with something more relevant to my life this morning to read than all of these laws about oxes goring people and what to do when a fist fight breaks out and what people should die over and and all those things. This is why we don't skip stuff. Because we believe that God's Word is inspired and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. We believe because of what the apostles and what our Savior Jesus said that all of Scripture, even those old pesky Old Testament laws, have value within them. And therefore, we're not going to skip stuff because we believe Christianity is true. And we believe that everything within it is valuable. And we're not going to be scared to think through hard things. So in the last few weeks, we've seen in this book of the law how God immediately tells Israel that they need to build an altar. Because in order for an unholy people to dwell near a holy God, they will need a way to stay in His presence. And He talks about altars and atonement. God acknowledges that these laws His people will not keep perfectly. And then the last two weeks, we've looked at the end of Exodus 20 and into 21 that deals with slavery for men and for women. 
And last week we looked at this idea of arranged marriages and polygamy and all these different things that are going on in these laws. And what we've seen, if if you weren't here for those, and you're immediately thinking, is this preacher really about to say that slavery is okay? We we saw how the form of, of servanthood that was going on in ancient Israel was totally different than what we typically think of. And we saw how the ancient cultures did these arranged marriages. So this morning, as we look at these laws about vengeance and retribution and how Israel's to live together, my hope is to show you not only what these things mean and not only the character of our unchanging God found within these laws, but also how they point us forward to Christianity and to the gospel of Jesus Christ and how they're relevant in our lives in very practical ways. So I want to point your attention to three truths this morning that I believe we must see to make sense of these verses. And the first truth is this. God gives just laws to govern a distinct people. God gives just laws to govern a distinct people. Phil Riken, a pastor and commentator, has helpfully broke all these laws I just read down into three categories. Capital crimes, personal injury laws, and criminal negligence laws. So the first section of these verses deals with capital crimes in verses 12 through 17. These are things that if an Israelite does them, they're so heinous that God says that they must die. He says that if you murder, then you are to be put to death because a holy people cannot allow such evil to occur among them. But wisely, God knows that in a fallen world, accidents will happen. And if it's an accident that's not on purpose, then it doesn't deserve the same kind of retribution. So verse 12 says that if you unintentionally kill someone, there will be cities of refuge set up in Israel that you can flee to, and those cities will offer you protection from the family of the deceased person who surely will be coming after you for justice. Verse 16, I'm sorry, uh, God next mentions after murder that children who strike their parents or who curse their parents will be put to death. That should make all you kids and teenagers sit up straight, right? It wasn't a spanking. Instead, it was capital punishment. Now, I want to say this isn't just talking about getting upset and saying something disrespectful and all of a sudden they were pulling out stones. This isn't talking about getting up in each other's face in a moment of passion and and all of a sudden there's legitimate reasons to put to death a child. Instead, what this is referring to is a physical act of violence committed against a parent with the intent to kill them. What this is talking about with cursing is really a disowning of your parent, a high-handed refusal to honor and respect them with the way that you live your life. And God's Word says that children who are this rebellious and this hard-hearted towards the God-given authority in their lives, children who are willing to do such things against those who have kept them alive and sustained them and raised them, need not live in Israel. Because if they'll do this to the people who have loved them the most, what else will they do in Israel? Verse 16 also includes abduction. 
the stealing of another human, and even the harboring of a stolen man or woman as a crime worthy of capital punishment. We mentioned in the last few weeks dealing with slavery and the differences that the Bible actually would forbid directly the type of slavery that happened in our country that involved in the first steps stealing someone from their home. So these three or four things that are mentioned as capital crimes, they're obviously not the only things in Israel that would lead to the punishment of death, but they're all directly related to the Ten Commandments, to murder, honoring parents, and stealing. So those are the capital crimes. Then verses 18 through 27 deal with situations involving personal injury. Injuring someone requires that the perpetrator pay for the loss of time due to this injury. Even if someone who's working for you is not doing their job and you decide to administer some sort of consequence, that punishment must not be excessive. If you kill your servant, then you are, they are avenged and you die. If you injure them so that they cannot work, it actually hurts you because you're missing out on the services that they have signed up under this contract labor law to give to you. If you injure them in a permanent way, then you must release them from their contract and they can pursue employment elsewhere. So God is giving strict rules and putting them in place to prevent the physical harm of those who very easily in society could be taken advantage of. We see that if fighting men harm a pregnant woman and the woman dies or the child in utero dies, then those who were fighting who did this action will die too. But if it turns out that the the woman who's pregnant and her child end up being okay, then they must pay a fine in order to be held accountable. What God's doing in these injury laws is He's incentivizing Israel to be a peacemaking people. And as He does that, He's providing justice for those in society who, all, who oftentimes would be vulnerable. So after capital crimes and personal injury cases, verses 28 through 36 deal with criminal negligence, most of which deals with animals and property. In ancient Israel, just about everyone was a farmer. So issues with animals and property would constantly come up. It's interesting, since I've been here, I I know many uh, are are farmers uh, or are family of farmers. And I remember when Mr. Philip uh, Robinson and I became friends, he would call me and ask me, what does the Bible say about this or that situation that dealt with animals and property lines and things like that. And I always, my initial response was, well, I don't know that it deals with that. But actually it does. It's right here in Exodus 21. And what we see in these laws about animals and gorings and open pits and all these different things is that the owner's level of accountability is going to be decided by the situation and whether or not negligence led to someone else's harm. So these laws that are given in these verses we just read, they're obviously not exhaustive. They're case laws, and they provide Israel with principles of justice 
And those principles of justice can be used as different situations arise in Israel that are not specifically mentioned in the book of the covenant. So the first thing we see here as we just try to just briefly hit on and explain some of these laws is God gives just laws to govern a distinct people. But what we need to be looking for is the principles underneath those laws. Because the old covenant does not apply to us in exactly the same way, at least not all of it does, as believers in the new covenant. It's still important, it's still God's word, and the principles within it are still true. So we need to look for those principles. So the second thing that I want to think about is God's principles for justice that are found in these laws. So what are those principles? Well, first, personal responsibility was required. Personal responsibility and accountability was required of Israel by God. God's people will be held accountable for their choices, for their actions. Because you cannot have a just society without having legitimate accountability. You can't do it. So God is giving Israel clear standards and He's going to hold them accountable to those standards. God's principles for justice start there with personal responsibility. But also we see throughout these laws that the punishment must always fit the crime. Some actions deserve capital punishment. Others deserve a fine. Others paying workman's comp. Others losing your property. This idea that's found here of an eye for an eye was a principle that was used for justice that was very common in the ancient world. On the surface, saying an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, doesn't sound very gracious, does it? But in reality, think about what a rule like that does. It actually is an extremely helpful principle that protects a criminal from facing punishment that far exceeds their crime. Without having rules that limit people's ability to pursue vengeance, then what will people do? They'll have nothing to restrain them from killing someone over any sort of infraction or personal injury, no matter how serious or how small. If we're honest, we understand why those kind of limitations are needed. Because when you're the injured party, or when you've lost the loved one, of someone, you lost someone who is near and dear to you, typically you're not only concerned about justice, but your sinful nature also is concerned about revenge. What God's law does here is it guards against the lust for blood. It guards against our temptation for unjust revenge. It's important also to note that when it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's not actually saying that if you harm someone's eye, they're going to physically, literally gouge your eye out or get get pliers and pull a tooth out if you punch someone and knock their tooth out. It's It's a... symbolic principle that says the punishment must match the crime. So these principles for justice, people will be held accountable, people are to be personally responsible, and the punishment must fit the crime in order for them to be just. But another principle that we see in these laws is that God is one who will protect the vulnerable and who will put limitations on the powerful. In a society where might makes right, only the strong can survive and not be taken advantage of. 
The physically strong, the wealthy, and the influential have the ability to rig the system to their advantage by preying on and abusing the weak and the poor and the vulnerable. But when God is your king and God is just and merciful, He requires that you as His people be distinct among the nations and that justice must reign among your lives together. That's why all throughout Exodus 21, but also Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and God's law, He gives these laws to protect the poor, to protect the weak, to protect the needy. He gives these laws to protect the servant or the orphan or the widow or the disabled, even the foreigner who is far away from home. So God's law includes both the assumption of personal responsibility and commands to show mercy to the weak and needy and destitute. I'm going to say that again, because the rest of the sermon, I want to unpack that idea. God's laws here and throughout the rest of the Scriptures include both the assumption of personal responsibility and commands to show mercy to the destitute. So what that means is, is today, when we only expect people to be responsible, and we have no desire to show mercy to the needy, then we are not rightly reflecting the character of our God, because God is just, but He is also merciful. And On the opposite end of the spectrum, today, when we only expect other people to take care of us, and we're constantly preaching mercy and helping out the needy, but we're not also calling people to be accountable and responsible for their choices, then we are not reflecting the character of God, because He is merciful, but He is also just. Justice and mercy for God's people is not an either-or scenario. It's not that you are either called to be just and righteous or merciful and gracious. We are called to both be just and merciful because that is who our God is. So to reflect God's character in our lives... We must both hold people accountable and demand that they be responsible for their actions and we must have a heart of mercy and compassion to those in need. And walking that fine line requires wisdom. It requires the Holy Spirit's guidance, but it is required for us to be an individual or a church who is walking justly and pursuing mercy. If we're honest, every one of us find ourselves in situations day in and day out, week in and week out, that require us to make choices about whether or not we will help someone in need. The reason is because we live in a fallen world and there will never cease to be people in need. And if we're honest, many today in our world believe that what churches are are handout corporations who will pay your bills, provide for your needs, and ask no questions. Friends, we are called to be good stewards of God's money. We are not called to be foolish people who lack discernment and who 
regularly get played by con men and women who prey on those who have guilty consciences. We should desire to help people. We should desire to and be willing to make personal sacrifices for those in need. Our default position should be one of mercy because of the great mercy and grace that was shown to us. And yet, there comes a point when the most loving thing you can do for someone is to stop enabling them. I'm not advocating getting there too quickly. I'm not advocating hard-heartedly never being willing to help someone. I would rather err on the side of mercy. And I pray that God will never allow me to forget the great undeserved mercy that He has showed me when I'm considering whether or not I should help someone else. But friends, the same Bible that protects those in Israel who can easily be taken advantage of, also says, if a man doesn't work, let him not eat. And it also says, you reap what you sow. So being made in God's image and emulating God's character in our lives means that we must be responsible people who have a purpose, who seek to provide for ourselves, and who do it for God's glory and others' good. And being made in God's image require that we have hearts of mercy, willing to sacrifice for and help others move towards the life that God has called them to. We see in these verses and these laws the character of God, and we see His principles for justice. Personal responsibility. True justice means the the punishment must fit the crime. It means that the vulnerable not be taken advantage of, and the weak not or the, the powerful not be able to take advantage of them. So we've seen these just laws and the different categories, and we've seen the principles underlying them that apply into our life. And I lastly this morning want to focus your attention on this truth. That God is both just and the justifier. God is both just and the justifier. I get that language from Romans 3, 25 and 26, and we'll get there in a minute, but God is both just and justifier. What these laws show us is that justice and mercy matter to a righteous God. And everyone who is here today, who professes to follow Jesus Christ, can attest to the tension that they feel in their day-to-day life in wanting to be both just and be merciful, but sometimes not knowing how to do it. Some of us struggle with showing mercy and are quick to say that we're not willing to bother with those in need. Some of us on the other end of the spectrum struggle with saying no. We struggle with giving the needed tough love to those who will never live in God's design as long as they're enabled not to. 
We all feel this tension and we all lean one way or the other on it. And as we feel that tension and try to think about as a Christian, what should I do? It's important for us to see that God's character as a just and merciful God is not just put on display here in Exodus 21 and in the Old Testament, but His glorious character as being just and merciful is most beautifully and most clearly put on display at the cross of Calvary. Because it's at the cross of Calvary that resolution of how God can be just and merciful simultaneously is found. It's to the cross of Calvary and to Jesus' sacrifice for us that we must look if we are to be a just people but also a merciful people. The Bible teaches us that after mankind rebelled against God, that because God is righteous, that His character demanded that He justly destroy all rebellion. That's not because God is mean, it's because God is good. And because evil must be punished. God is holy and righteous. He can't dwell in the presence of sin. And His character demanded that. God would have been totally just as soon as Adam and Eve rebelled against Him to judge them and show no grace. But what did He do instead? Instead, He promised to make a way for mankind to live at peace with Him again. How? Through a future descendant, a future offspring that would come from their family. And what your Bible is, is not just a list of rules and regulations. Instead, it is the unfolding story of how God will keep that promise and how sinful mankind can dwell with God again where the fullness of joy is found. In the Old Testament, in order for God to dwell near His people Israel, they had to offer the blood of bulls and goats in sacrifices. And yet, this this never truly atones for their sin. This never truly creates full and final peace between them and God. Instead, God must send His perfect Son to step down off the throne to take the form of a servant, to identify with us as humans, and to live a sinless, perfect life, unlike Adam and Eve in the garden, unlike Israel in the Old Testament, and unlike us in our day-to-day lives. Jesus Christ, unlike us all, truly earns and deserves God's favor and blessing as a result of His perfect, sinless, obedient, law-keeping life. But instead of taking what was His, God's favor and blessing, He chose to go to the cross of Calvary to bear the judgment of His Father, not for His sins, but for the sins of His people who are in need of forgiveness and restoration. The most significant reality going on at the cross of Calvary was not anything that could be seen with human eyes. It wasn't even the physical suffering that Jesus chose to go through, but it was something that was invisible. It was that the God of justice and righteousness was finally doing what was right by holding people accountable for their sin. 
All the sins that God had overlooked of Adam and Eve and Abraham and Moses. All the sins that had recently been committed by Peter and Paul and Mary and Martha and Timothy. Even all the sins of future believers like Polycarp and Athanasius and Luther and Spurgeon. Even all the sins of believers in our lifetime like Billy Graham and Lou Gross and Jimmy Davis, and Brooks McCants, and Cherry Joe Lays, and all of His people were paid for finally at the cross of Calvary in a real and meaningful way. Why? So that God's justice as a good God could be upheld. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ takes upon Himself the judgment of a holy God in our place. He is condemned, not for His sin, but for my sin. He is crushed so that my penalty of sin could be paid. So that I can be counted not guilty before God. So I can be pardoned. So that one day I can boldly approach the throne of God's grace and live in His presence forever where there's fullness of joy. That's why the Apostle Paul writes famously in Romans 3, verses 23 through 26, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in God's divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. This was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that He, God, might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Him. Because of our sin, the Bible says that we deserve the eternal judgment and wrath of God because we have spit in the face of the One who has made us for His glory. But the Bible says that on the cross of Calvary, God's justice and character was upheld, and yet as He bore the judgment of God in my place, God was simultaneously making a way for the ungodly to be shown mercy and grace and to be forgiven and pardoned for their sin. At the cross of Jesus, God is just and justifier. God is righteous and merciful. God is holding people accountable and showing undeserved grace. That is the heart of our faith. And that is the heart of what we are called to be as Spirit-empowered, Bible-believing, Jesus-saturated people today. And it is only when we see God's justice and mercy at the cross of Calvary that we will be able to make sense of the tension we feel between holding other people accountable and stepping into and meeting their need. Because when we consider how just God is, so just and righteous, in fact, that He was willing to send His only Son to die, it reminds us that we too must pursue justice. We too must hold people accountable and responsible for their choices because God will. But when we look to the cross 
It also reminds us that we are fallen sinners and must show grace. The fact that God is just and will hold people accountable, that God was willing to send His only Son to die to uphold His justice, gives us the backbone and the boldness that is needed for us to have that difficult conversation. It gives us the backbone and the boldness so that we can love people by calling them to God's standard and not continually enabling them to live outside of God's design. And yet as we look at that same cross where God's justice is displayed, we're reminded that it was my rebellion against God that deserved eternal punishment. It was my spiritual need that I could not fix in any way. And yet, in my need, in my spiritual poverty, in my desperation, in my being destitute, God mercifully sent His Son Jesus to bear my judgment so I don't have to face God's judgment forever. And only through Jesus and the undeserved mercy that was shown to me as a fallen, broken, needy, poor sinner can I be forgiven Can I be empowered to live for Him now? And can I one day dwell at peace with God? That glorious truth, that life-changing truth reminds us that the same God of justice shows undeserved and amazing grace to the undeserving. And so should I. Aren't you thankful this morning that Jesus didn't look down at our fallen, broken world and say, you know, God, that sin issue is their problem. They are reaping what they have sown. And I'm not getting mixed up with that bunch of screw-ups. Instead, what did He do? He stepped off the throne of heaven. He took the form of a servant. And He willingly was taken advantage of for the good of others. Instead, He came down and lived a perfect sinless life. And specifically, He invested His life into the life of 12 men who could take His message on after He was gone. And what happened among those 12 men? Every one of them abandoned Him. And one in particular, one of His closest friends, betrayed Him. Why? Because He considered His life worth the same amount as that of a hired hand gored by an ox in Exodus 21, only worth 30 shekels of silver. After Jesus is abandoned and betrayed by His closest friends, He is unjustly charged with what? With a capital crime, receiving the death penalty to die as a criminal, just like the capital crimes found in Exodus 21. And while on that cross, he did what? He bore the judgment of a holy God for sins that he did not commit. If there is anyone in human history who can look at their life, look at their situation, look at their circumstances, and complain about being wronged, if there is anyone who can cry out injustice, it would be our sinless Savior Jesus. But in order to show mercy to the ungodly, in order to meet the spiritual needs of His people, in order to uphold and display the character and justice of His Father, Jesus humbly sacrificed Himself. That is love. That is grace. 
And that reality alone can enable us as fallen sinners to offer forgiveness to those who have wronged us. That alone can enable us as fallen sinners to sacrifice our comfort and our schedules and our conveniences in order to serve other people in the local church and in our community. That reality of what Jesus has done for us alone will enable us to willingly take a chance of being taken advantage of if it means that there's a chance that someone in need will draw nearer to God and taste and see the salvation and the glory that we as poor, blind, begging sinners have experienced. That alone enables us to show the grace and the mercy to those in need while simultaneously pursuing justice and accountability. The resolution of this tension between showing justice and grace to people is found not ultimately in the case laws of ancient Israel, but in the person and work of of Jesus. It is He who we must believe in for forgiveness. It is His Spirit alone that will enable us to follow in His footsteps. It is His life, death, resurrection alone that will empower us to emulate His example and live lives, not to be served by others, but to lay our lives down in service and sacrifice for others. Only with our eyes fixed on Jesus can we live that kind of life and make sense of that tension that we all feel. If you're here this morning and you hear these laws and you hear this discussion and what you recognize as you hear God's standard and you consider what Jesus has done, is you realize that you and your sin are condemned. This morning, if you feel the weight of your guilt for your murder, for your anger issues, for your adultery, for your lust, for cursing the authority in your life, for the ways that you steal from others and steal from God, for the things that you lie about or cheat on, for harming others with your words and actions, if you feel your guilt for unjust business practices or a million other things, know this, if you feel that guilt and that weight this morning... The all-seeing God already knows. We can hide nothing from Him. And yet, from that place of brokenness and condemnation, the same God who will hold you accountable offers you pardon and forgiveness and mercy and grace through His Son, Jesus, and His finished work for you. So if you're here and you feel the weight of your guilt, know that you can be forgiven. You can be transformed. You can be empowered by the Spirit to live for God and not yourself. You can have that happen. The solution to your guilt problem, the solution to your spiritual powerlessness is Jesus Christ. Repenting of your sin, believing in who He is and what He's done, surrendering to Him as Lord and King. If that's you, today can be the day of salvation. But you must come to an end of yourself and cry out for the undeserved mercy that He alone can give. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer who has surrendered your life to Jesus 
And yet you, like me, struggle with that tension of knowing how to show grace, but also be just. Look no further than Jesus. Because He is the King who will hold us all accountable. But He is also the servant who laid down His life in sacrifice for the weak and the needy. It is only with our eyes fixed on Him that we can boldly approach the throne of grace and ask our God to empower us with the needed wisdom to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to pursue both justice and mercy. Whether your need is salvation, empowerment, transformation, whether your need this morning is for God to sustain you through the trial that you're going in, whatever it is, I pray that as we close, you'll respond to Him as the Spirit leads. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You this morning for Your grace and Your mercy. We thank You, God, that You are a God who does not tolerate evil, who is good and righteous, who holds us accountable. Because, God, we know that You are righteous and that You would not be worthy of worship if You did not hold us accountable. God, we thank You, though, also that while we deserve Your judgment, You are a God of mercy, of grace, of forgiveness. You are a God who will pardon the iniquity of sinners through Jesus Christ. We thank You that You alone perfectly blend together the attributes of being just and merciful, of being righteous and gracious. And we pray this morning that You will help us to emulate that not by our own efforts, not by our good works, not in order to make ourselves right with You, but only by Your Spirit's power. God, be with us. Work in us. Help us to surrender our lives to Your Word and to Your kingship. And help us to respond this morning, not by trying to earn Your favor, but by looking to Jesus, the author and founder and perfecter of our faith. Help us this morning to lift our gaze to Him, and to be transformed as a result. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.